We live in a time in history when it's never been easier to make, save, and invest money. Here's how to take advantage of those opportunities in a way that ultimately gives you more time and space and freedom in your life so that you can expand into the full expression of what it means to be a human being. One of my top performers, I remember, uh, I actually gave him a $100,000 raise, uh, even though he came and asked for a smaller dollar raise because there was no chance that I wanted him to leave because he was making me a very high multiple on his salary already. A dollar saved when you're 20 is worth four or five times a dollar saved when you're 30 because of the compounding potential of that money. Hi folks, and welcome to another episode of Stock Club. I'm Mike, and joining me in today's episode is best-selling author and personal finance expert, Grant Sabatier. Before we get into today's show, I just want to give a quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Vodafone have recently launched their VHub digital advisory service, offering Irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone Business customer to avail of this service. Search Vodafone VHub to book a call with one of the VHub digital experts, and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode. Hello everyone, I'd like to take one minute to tell you about a brand new MyWallStreet service called Nexus and to invite you to register your interest so you can be the first to hear about it when it launches in November. As you know, AI is changing all businesses and those who do not embrace it risk being left behind. The product we've created fuses state-of-the-art AI, advanced filtering and the intelligence of master investors for short actionable insights. There are over 58,000 listed companies on 60 exchanges around the world from which just a handful will grow 100 fold or more. Just one is required to change your life. Nexus is built to find it. Had it existed at the time, Nexus would have pinpointed stocks like Monster, Sleep Number and Biospecifics all ahead of a minimum 100 fold growth. This is a low volume product for serious long term investors. Register now via the link in the show notes or visit mywallstreet.com forward slash Nexus to express your interest. Howdy, folks. Today, I am joined by a very special guest here at Stock Club, Grant Sabatier. So Grant is the founder of Millennial Money and the author of the international bestseller, Financial Freedom, a proven path to all the money you'll ever need. He's documented his own personal finance success story and used it to facilitate others to achieve financial freedom, reach their money goals, and retire early if they so choose. Grant, you're very welcome to Stock Club. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, so let's let's start from the start, really, because I think what I love about your story is that it's so very personal. It started from you uh, in about 2014, 2015. You checked your bank account and you had two dollars and twenty six cents in your account, and from there you made it your your mission, really, to become financially independent, to retire early. That was one of your goals at the time, and from there, in five years' time, you had one point two five million in the bank account. So. Tell us about your story, what got started. Obviously, your motivations, I think, are clear, but but how they developed over time and how it's become this this industry of Grant Sabatier since, you know? Yeah, so, uh, you know, my, my story starts, you know, back when I was born, I was born in, in southern Indiana and in kind of a rural area. And, uh, you know, my parents grew up in a one stoplight town, didn't grow up with, you know, much or very much money. And so when I was six months old, they made the decision to move to the suburbs of Washington, D.C., which is you know, the capital of the United States, just to give me a different opportunity than they had. And so growing up, this is a story that they told often to me. I'm an only child. You know, my parents really struggled to make ends meet when they moved to D.C. And so, you know, money was really tight. It was something that they were stressed about. They fought about money was very, very present in my life growing up. And so, you know, growing up, my parents embedded a lot of their dreams and goals into me. And as I grew up, you know, I worked hard. I did well in school. I ended up graduating second in my class. I went to, you know, a top university and, you know, studied philosophy. And I really felt like I had, you know, everything going for me. And that, you know, I made really had made my parents proud. But when I graduated college in 2008, I ended up bouncing around four different jobs. I got laid off twice. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And so because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I just kind of, you know, floated around trying to make ends meet and just couldn't couldn't find the right fit. So when I was 24, I actually had to move back home with my parents 
because I was completely broke. And so here my parents had given me everything and all these opportunities and invested everything in me. And I was, you know, their adult son that had to move back because I was broke. And so in the summer, this is 2010, uh, I had went to a July 4th picnic. You know, it's the Independence Day in the U.S. And I was the only child there, uh, you know, adult child of my parents' friends. And everyone, you know, they were in their late 50s, early 60s. Everyone, all they could talk about was retirement. And they were talking about when are they going to retire? One person had retired. They talked about what they were doing. Every conversation was about money amongst these boomers and my parents. And I was like, gosh, you know, these people have worked their entire lives. And it was the first time that I looked at my parents and realized that they'd gotten a little older and that some of the dreams that they had talked about, not only had they not accomplished them, but they didn't even have them anymore. And so, you know, I didn't have anything else to do. And I'm you know, a philosophy major. So I was really reflecting on this and my life and felt really stuck. And I remember, you know, having dinner with my parents coming down one night and I could just see the shame and the fear in their faces. They were like, gosh, you know, what did we do wrong? You know, what's wrong with Grant? And it was just that look from them that really kind of welled up, you know, th this sort of come to Jesus moment, you know, in, in my life. And, and at, you know, at the point I had $2.26 in my bank account, so I couldn't even go out and get a Chipotle burrito. I had to eat, you know, the, the I turkey I don't even think you could have got the extra guac. Nothing. I couldn't get anything. So I had to eat. The, I was eating turkey sandwiches, you know, out of my parents' refrigerator, you know, as a 24 year old, which, you know, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But for me, you know, it was just I felt absolutely terrible. And so it was around this time that I started just thinking about money. I was like, gosh, you know, my parents are still stressed about money. They're not retired. Their friends are stressed about money. Everyone seems stressed. I don't have any money. You know, what is money? I'd actually never really thought much about money until that point. And so, you know, I, I just thought that, you know, money was something that I would eventually figure out. And so I put my philosophy hat on and I was like, you know, what is money really? And I started going down the rabbit hole and I Googled best money books. And the first result was a book, Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez. And so I ordered it and I ended up getting it. I remember the day it was August 10th, 2010. And I remember I got the book and I sat down and I read it in two sittings and I finished it, uh, you know, uh, during the weekend. And I was so blown away by this book where the central premise is whenever you're working, you're trading your life energy for money and you're never going to get back that time. And so you really need to think hard about how you make money, how you save it. And every time that you're investing, you're, you're actually acquiring you know, future freedom that you can take advantage of. This just absolutely blew my mind. And my quick takeaway was, OK, you know, I don't want to have to work for the rest of my life. How can I make as much money as quickly as possible? Right. So then that became my next Google search. And I immediately recognized that a vast majority of what I was finding was either, you know, completely wrong or scams or some, you know, multi-level marketing scheme. And I was like, geez, this money world is an absolute pit. This is terrible. You know, where can I get good advice? Where can I learn how to do this? And that really just set me off. Uh, on on a deep, deep learning journey, I ended up doing another Google search and saw a Google mobile ad and saw, uh, you know, that digital marketing careers were projected to grow 300 percent over the next decade. And so I ended up getting into Google ad campaigns and, and, and learning how to run them and getting certified uh, by free from Google. And, and I found a career that, you know, I knew nothing about, but that was growing. There was demand and it was something I felt like I could potentially be good at. And I was really off to the races. So. The first job I applied to after getting certified by Google for free, it took me it took me a little over a month, was in Chicago at a digital marketing agency. I went there, basically got a PhD in digital marketing for a year, learned everything I could about paid search and paid social and SEO and building websites. And I quickly realized, gosh, you know, I don't want to work for $52,000 a year, even saving 50% of my income, which I was able to do at that level because I was driving an $800 car and living in a $700 a month apartment. You know, there's a limit to how much I could save. So I started side hustling and building websites for smaller companies than my agency would work with and then ended up leaving the agency after a year after I'd made over $250,000 on the side building websites for lawyers and realtors in Chicago. And so I kind of find that found that niche, ended up scaling an agency. I started a second agency focused on higher education the entire time. I was saving 82% of my income, and this is all I was doing. Uh, it took me, you know, five years, three months, and two days uh, from from the day that I left my parents' house to go from the two dollars and twenty six cents to one point two five million dollars saved in my bank account. And it was by far the hardest thing that I've ever done. It was crazy, you know. It was you know, I made a ton of mistakes, 
But, you know, like anything in life, when you spend a lot of time doing something, and I can very, very confidently say that I've far surpassed the 10,000 hour expert threshold when it comes to studying and learning about money. You know, you actually learn a lot and you learn a ton. And so I, I learned a bunch and, you know, all my friends were still broke and in debt and my parents were still working. And, you know, I went on this sort of, you know, heroic uh, hero's journey for five years uh, where I made a lot of trade-offs and I came out the other end with way more money than I thought I would ever have and a, a lot of lessons. And, you know, I kind of had my, uh, my money that then, you know, I wanted to share what I had learned with others, not even thinking that you could make money writing about money. I just wanted to share what I had learned in, in the hopes that it could help others. And so I started talking to my friends about what I had done. And obviously I'd encountered other personal finance blogs and I realized that, you know, I had an incredible story to tell and I was very passionate about helping others because I had been so stressed and I didn't want others to feel stressed. And I also think really the, 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 you know, the chips are stacked against the little guy uh, and it can be very confusing and a very difficult world to navigate. Um, less kind of the how to save money and more the how to make money. And so that's really what I made my focus is, hey, you know, we live in a time in history when it's never been easier to make, save and invest money. Here's how to take advantage of those opportunities in a way that ultimately gives you more time and space and freedom in your life so that you can expand into the full expression of what it means to be a human being. So I had a pretty big mission and started just writing and learning how to write. And I was a terrible, terrible, terrible writer, you know, at first and, you know, just practiced at it and got a little bit better and built an audience and got a following and really became a reluctant influencer, uh, you know, before influencers were really kind of a thing, you know, so I, I came up when, when that term, before that term was even coined and then, you know, it was coined kind of in the middle of my journey. Uh, but, but I really stumbled into that um, and, and learned a lot about, you know, what it means to have a platform and a voice and, you know, connecting with, you know, a broad global audience and yeah, ended up getting a book deal and with Penguin Random House and writing Financial Freedom, which is now in 19 languages, just sold the Estonian translation uh, last week. And yeah, it's just been such a joy and such a dream uh, to be able to, to, to share what I learned and continue to refine what I learned because I, I've learned an immense amount from readers, you know, of my content. That's been the coolest thing because I share what I've done and then people reach out with other recommendation or tweaks. And, you know, I end up learning a ton about tax efficiency and investing and, you know, bu building a real estate business and building a holding company. I've learned so much just from my readers filling the gaps in my own knowledge. And, and it's become, you know, a much larger community uh, and mission and just, you know, blown my mind you know, has become something far beyond you know, anything I could could ever have imagined. And I feel really grateful to to be able to do this work and support this mission and, you know, send, send out, you know, hopefully, you know, as many good vibes to, to people as I can. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said there, because that's the essence of the book. It, it It's there's hundreds of lessons in it, but it's an intensely personal story. And you intertwine so much of what you want to do not with money per se, but with the time that the money gives you and the freedom that the money gives you. And so like you equate so much of, well, is this worth spending on this? Yes, if it's something you truly enjoy. And I, 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 I think that's the part of the book I enjoy the most. There's some great lessons in there. But in this, in this essence, it's almost biographical. Is that a fair point? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the word expert. You know, people being like, I'm a finance expert. And that's what I encountered a lot on my journey. People are like, I'm a personal finance expert and I'm this expert. And I really have problems with the idea of, of, of expert, you know, as, as a concept, because, you know, we all live very different lives, but obviously we're all human. And, and what we really have is perspectives. And so I made some choices that are pretty different than my friends and my family and that most people make in our society. And I feel like I found just another path in life. And it's a path that I, you know, really changed my life. It's made my life better. Uh, I'm, I'm so much happier. I'm healthier. You know, it's, 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 I didn't have to choose the status quo. And so I just want other people to have that option. I just want to say, hey, you know, there's this other way you can do things. Like you don't have to be as intense as, as, as I was, but you know, here's another path. And, Here's everything that I learned and kind of take take what, you know, 
you, you need and and leave the rest. But I really felt from the beginning of, of writing about money in 2015 that I had to be extremely open and transparent. You know, until uh, you know, basically the, the book came out. I shared every investment that I made, the performance of that investment, how my net worth was growing. You know, I wanted to I wanted to to open the money conversation because really no one in 2010 was talking about money openly at all. And so that was one of the things that, you know, I realized was, was holding a lot of people back because you, know, you couldn't really talk to your friends or your family about money because there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of just fear. And so I wanted to set an example by just being extremely open with many millions of people who I didn't know in the hope that they would feel inspired to be open themselves with those around them. And so that's been really cool because just opening my entire life to people, I, I didn't have to put on a face. You know, I didn't have to, uh, you know, I always feel like creating content, especially online, you know, you often create personas uh, and what happens when you create a persona over time, it creates, it can create some real dissonance in your life when the person that you're projecting is, is different than the person that you actually are. And so I knew this kind of going in, you know, philosophically, uh, you know, th th through kind of my own thinking. And so I wanted to just be really open with who I was uh, because, you know, I wanted to, to you know, be, be um, you know, really try to connect on, on a human level. And there's just a lot of energy involved in all this, you know, like people connect with people and, um, you know, I just felt really inspired to do that. And I think that's one of the biggest things missing in a lot of, especially finance content is, is, is people get a little personal, but they don't get personal enough. And, I just reviewed, I'm, I'm not going to reveal her name, but I just reviewed, you know, a pr pretty large money writers book, uh, you know, before, before it comes out and I read through it and it's a really great book, but she, she, you know, mentions a few things that her, her and her husband do, but I wanted, I wanted to hear a lot more about her story. Uh, it would have helped me connect more and, and, um, you know, I think, I think made the content resonate a little bit more. So yeah, it's, the book is 100% biographical and that's really the only way it's the easiest way I found to write. And that's the only way that I want to write because, um, you know, I, I think it adds a lot of a lot of perspective and a lot of color and helps people connect with the work. It's not just, you know, some, some guy sharing financial advice. It's, you know, here's what was actually happening in my own life. And this, you know, I did accomplish this cool goal, but it was really, really messy. And here's what I learned, you know, along the way. Um, and that's what it's also made it a lot more fulfilling to me because people you know who read the book and who, who are impacted and touched by it uh you know you know say oh you know i feel like i've known you forever and you know it's like you're my my cousin or my brother or my you know it's like it's a it's a very personal personal experience and so i'm really happy that i that i wrote it in that way yeah or like me and you listen to the audiobook and you have your voice rattling around your head for two weeks as well um yeah okay i want to ask you a question i'm very interested to hear your answer and then is the question is what does the general consensus or what does the general population have wrong about retirement? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think it's kind of a generational question. And so, you know, boomers or, you know, people who let's say are over the age of 60, you know, they have always viewed, you know, retirement as kind of this, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know, if they work hard, then they'll finally have the freedom to do the things that they want to do. The problem with that is, you know, who we are as humans, you know, we, we tend to change a lot faster than we uh, admit to ourselves. And so the things that you, you know, the dreams that you set when you're 30, hey, I want to go, you know, walk the Great Wall of China or I want to go spend, you know, a month in India, you know, these, these, these sort of big dreams, very high likelihood that, you know, maybe in 20 or 30 years when you retire, you know, you know, God willing, you have the health. And, and the financial means to be able to do those things. But what I find is a lot of people just don't have those dreams anymore. You know, the dreams just kind of over time, they, uh, they, they, they fatigue, they denature, they drop away. And or, so I think or maybe they, they kind of, they downgrade because people realize that their idea of retirement and the money needed for those dreams maybe isn't feasible as well. Yeah. I, th I think just, yeah, momentum shifts. And so what happens you know, I think it's this big kind of farce that, that boomers were sold on. That's just, you know, save a little bit of money for the rest of your life and then you'll be able to do whatever you want. And and the cool thing is, you know, especially, you know, millennials and, and now Gen Z, you know, just we're, we're not willing to to accept that trade off for face value. 
because we're seeing our parents, you know, still having to work and not have enough money. We're seeing, you know, it's like, it's like, if, you know, all these people followed this advice, you know, for 30 years and then they didn't end up where they wanted to end up. So then you have to take a really hard look at that advice and be like, okay, you know, all that stuff that you all were reading about and following and doing, you know, it, is, is it really the right way to go about it? Uh, and so I think that's been the big shift where, you know, especially people, you know, my age and our age, you know, retirement um, can still be, you know, a pot of gold at the end of the, the tunnel, but we just don't want to wait 30 years for it. You know, we're, we're impatient and we're complacent. And so that's really cool. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's some people, you know, even some of my best friends who've read my book and who know me and who can, you know, sit and have a beer with me, you know, or watch a soccer game with me and ask me any question on earth, still think it's not possible to reach financial independence at a young age. I mean, these are my good friends. They see the life that I'm living. They've read my book. They ask me questions and they still can't, you know, can't believe it. And I, and I think there's an element of that in, in everybody where, um, and that's the challenging thing with the work that I do, because you can show people what you've done, show them how to do it and, and, and do everything. But if they, if they don't believe in themselves, you know, that it's possible or they don't want it, uh, then, then, you know, they're, they're just going to stay in their same mindset and kind of accept the, the status quo existence. So I think that's the biggest challenge is the idea of retiring early, which doesn't mean you're not going to work for the rest of your life. It just means you have the option to work on whatever you want. And I think a lot of people, you know, we go through phases in our lives where we, we might want to work really hard on a project or we might be interested in something. And then we might want to move on, you know, to something else. Like I'm just like a lot of people, you know, I'm, I, I get you know bored very easily. And so I'm happy to work on something for a year or two uh, or maybe even five years, but then I want to do something else. And so I think there there's, increasingly, especially younger people, it's a lot easier for them to, to see and understand that they have more options, a lot more options than their parents had, and that they don't even have to think about retirement as a destination. It's just like life is almost like a, a series of mini retirements or just phases or you know adaptations. But ultimately, you still have to find a way to make and save money and then use your freedom very uh, you know intelligently uh, so, so that you can, you know, maximize, you know, your happiness and, and, and the experience that you're, you're, you're getting from it. So I think the idea of retirement, you know, still exists. I think, you know, anything that the media writes about to get clicks, you know, will, will stick around for a while. But I think increasingly people are just skeptical about it. And some people are skeptical and they're like, I'm never going to have enough money to retire. So I'm not going to save anything. And there's those people, you know, or there's the people who's just like, you know, everything, you know, sucks and we can't make money. And, you know, we're the millennials, we're Gen Z and we have more student loan debt than anyone ever. And then, the you know, the dominant narrative becomes everyone's super in debt. So they're never going to be able to retire. So people just accept that existence. Or there's an increasing minority of people that are like, oh, OK, you know, we have the Internet. We have all these different ways to make money. There's a lot of people making money in a lot of different ways. I'm going to spend instead of my time just kind of wallowing, you know, or watching Netflix or playing video games. And I'm going to figure this thing out because there's never been more opportunities. And I believe, you know, that I can, you know, acquire and make more money than, than, than I thought I could. And, you know, I'm, I'm really in control of my life. And so I think there's those three buckets of people. And thankfully, you know, because people are writing and sharing about this, you know, more and more people are believing that this is possible and then learning themselves as they, as they get on the path that it actually is possible. And then, you know, once, once someone starts believing that that's all they need, you know, everything else takes care of itself. Yeah. There's the power of optimism there for sure. And, and, and especially after reading the book, the, the, the aspirational nature of it too is very prominent. And on that, I want to talk about one of the more, at first glance, at least provocative things within the book. And that's that you need less money to retire at 30 than you do at 60. So could you expand on that for me? Yeah, actually, I don't know. I think you listened to the audiobook, but um, this isn't in the hardcover, but actually in the paperback version, if you buy the paperback copy and you look in the appendix, I actually broke out all the math of why this is actually true. Uh, and you actually need, so, so it's, a, it's a mathematical proof that shows why you need less money to retire at the age of 30 than you do at the age of 65. And so I encourage you to check out the appendix of, of the paperback version because it, it, it is a mathematical certainty 
Um, what you need to do is it's all about accelerating the rate of compounding of your money. And so it's not like you can save you know, $10 when you're 30 and then retire on it, right? Of course, there, 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 there are numbers at play here. And the idea is that if you can front load your savings, because, you know, a dollar saved when you're 20 is worth four or five times a dollar saved when you're 30 because of the compounding potential of that money. The ultimate goal is to invest as much as early and often as you can. And so the idea is that it's like an engine, you know, compounding. What happens is you see these compounding curves, you know, where they, where they go up like this. And what happens is people save a little bit and then their money starts making money. What you basically do is you front load all of that. And so when you try, when instead of starting down here, if you're saving, you know, up here, what actually happens is the rate of compounding increases exponentially. And so the curve is much, much steeper. And so the idea is that when you're saving money, if you can save enough by the time that you're 30 and then just live off basically the interest income in a vast majority of cases based on many, many different models, that money is going to continue to grow and compound at a rate that is far higher and greater than it would be if you retired at the age of 65. And you're going to likely have, you know, three to four to five times the amount of money. And so it's really about the rate of compounding. Uh, and, and you do have to save this, you know, a, a pretty large amount of money, but it works even if you don't save a ton, uh, if, if, as long as you don't spend, you know, the principal, you know, of, of your investment, because ultimately the rate of compounding is, is so much greater than it would be if you retired at 65 versus the age of 30. So it's, it's really the case, the mathematical case for saving as much and investing as much as early and often as you can and, you know, saving, you know, 50 to 80% of your income, uh, you know, between the ages of you know 22 and 30, and living off that money for the rest of your life, as opposed to you know, for example, saving five percent of your income from the ages of 20 to 60, which is the the dominant narrative. Mm. And on that, uh, we have Brian Faroli on the podcast recently, and he talks about this shift from thinking like a consumer or a customer to thinking like an investor, and bringing in this this concept of opportunity to cost. To major expenses, really. You mentioned you were driving an eight hundred dollar car. So one of the I loved uh, from the books was how a fifty thousand dollar car can end up costing you about ten years of your life and five hundred or six hundred thousand dollars. So that's that's the same thing. It's it's you're taking away that opportunity to compound that money and putting into a depreciating asset into instead of a instead of a, yeah I'm... paying yourself, we'll say. Yeah, I, I, you know, that's pretty, pretty, you know, eye-opening example because a lot of people just think, oh, you know, I'm buying a fifty, fifty thousand dollar car, but you don't realize, you know, number one, when you're buying that fifty thousand dollar car, you're buying it with after-tax money, right? So you had to earn, say, thirty percent more. So the car really cost, you know, seventy thousand dollars in 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 before-tax income. So say you had a seventy thousand dollar salary. Uh, in one year, that's an entire year of working for that car. And so not only is it the hours that it takes uh, to, to, to buy the car, but then to your point, it's the, it's the lost opportunity cost of not investing that money instead. So you work, you know, 2000 hours for an entire year and you make $70,000 and you buy that, you know, $50,000 car with that money. So you've traded 2000 hours for that car. If you would have taken that money and invested it instead, you know, over the next 10, 20, 30 years, you know, that money, let's just say it doubles every 10 years that, you know, $70,000 becomes, you know, $140,000 after 10 years, and then it becomes 280,000, then it becomes 560, then, you know, 40 years later, it's, you know, $1.2 million. And so you're like, geez, wait, you know, I could have bought that new car or in 40 years, I could have $1.2 million. And so when you, when you change the framing a bit, um, a lot of people even reading that framing will still buy the car, right? Because we, we, we want the thing. Uh, but I, I do think that especially it, it helps you understand the massive, massive trade-off, you know, that you're making whenever you buy anything, um, you know, whenever you spend any money. And so it's very important just to take the time to be intentional and think through why you're buying something, whether or not it's going to be worth it. And then being very honest with yourself about why you're buying it. You know, if that car gives you more joy than anything in your entire life and you live somewhere you have to drive all the time and it's your thing, which, you know, in, in the U.S. people buy their trucks or, 
their cars and it's it's such a huge part of their identity you know if 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 you know if it's that for you that's fine and that's great just just realize you know how much it's costing you and that you're sacrificing an immense amount of future freedom for it so it might make you feel really good now just try to understand gosh i might have to work an extra six or seven years of my life in the future to afford this car. Yeah. And when so, you start, when you, when you have that paradigm shift in your head and that, I think that's one of the most important things from the book, thinking like an investor and to think like an investor, you also have to realize the power of compounding and what it can do. I think uh, Albert Einstein called it the eighth wonder of the world. So with that in mind, I want to talk about your own investment strategy because I think the figure you mentioned is 7% real return. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of your target compounding um, number. How how did you go about achieving that? Because I know you made it very simple for yourself, if that makes sense. Did you concentrate on individual stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, or did you branch out into real estate, even crypto? Tell us about your own investing story. Yeah, gosh, uh, very, very multifaceted. So, you know, I thankfully, you know, in, in 2010, you know, I read, you know, a number of books that were, you know, index fund investing, um, you know, I read The Coffee House Investor, which is a book that was pretty impactful for me. I read a, a few of Jack Bogle's books. So uh, I was in Boglehead's Guide to Investing, you know, I was pretty sold on the idea of investing in a total stock market index fund. So I realized that I wanted most of my money to go into an index fund. But, you know, I was 24, you know, 25 index funds are pretty boring. And so while I was front loading those, you know, I had, I had a lot of money to invest because I was investing, you know, 82% of my income, you know, so we're talking about, you know, having, you know, 200 K plus to invest. And so what would end up happening is I'd put, you know, 125 to $150,000 into index funds, but then I wanted to buy individual stocks as well, because I was very much of the mind, like everyone uses Amazon, Amazon's going to go up. Once Amazon Prime showed up, I was like, okay, you know, this is a game changer. It was so obvious. You know, there's some things that are so obvious when, and I feel like this is a lot easier, at least it was for me when I was 25 and I was, you know, it was kind of a golden age for, 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 you know, the Fang stocks. And, you know, it was, it was just like, as long as you just bought Facebook and Facebook was a big one because it was 2011. And I remember I had $32,000 just sitting in my checking account. And I actually went on a trip to Rome. And while my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, but while my wife was in the museum, I was sitting on IPO day on my laptop in a cafe waiting for Facebook to go public. And just so I could buy it, I was that, you know, cause like, you know, I, at University of Chicago, we were the second school to get Facebook. I was number, I was user like 21,000 on Facebook. Oh, I was, wow. was so, no so it used to be when it used to be when you had, so we were the second school to get it. And when you're in college, it actually had the number that you were, uh, you know, the user number that you were, uh, you know, in your profile. So it was that early. So I was like such a big believer in Facebook. So I was like, I got to get in on the IPO. So there's some of these stocks that were just, you know, just so obvious to me. And so I bought a few individual stocks that ended up growing exponentially. And I added to, you know, over time, but I, di I didn't diversify that much, uh, you know, in, in, into individual stocks. And then, you know, over the past, you know, three or four years, you know, I've divested from them, you know, almost entirely uh, and, and have a vast majority of my money in, uh, in, a, in a total stock market index fund at Vanguard. And then I've bought a number of rental properties uh, that, that honestly, they're not even cash flowing money. They just break even. But, you know, the, the renters cover the cost of the mortgage and the properties, you know, are, are appreciating. So I'm, I have the long term play there. But by far, by far, the best investment that I've made has been in launching a business. And so, you know, this is one of the things that really clicked for me where it's like, okay, yes, I can get, you know, 7.2% compound and inflation, you know, adjusted return investing in a total stock market index fund, you know, over the next 30 years or, you know, even 5%. And that's great. That's very passive, easy, tax efficient, diversified, but nothing compares to launching a business where, you know, you're in control, you, you can you can grow it. And so my actual, you know, rate of return from, you know, launching millennial money and then selling it, you know, I sold millennial money in October 2020 to the Motley Fool. And then I bought it back in July of 2022. Uh, you know, and so, you know, now I have a holding company of websites. So by far the highest ROI that I've had 
um, you know, has been, you know, I, I think I started, you know, millennial money with like five grand, uh, you know, and ended up selling it for, for a massive amount of money. So the ROI on starting a business for me uh, has been huge. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of encouraging people to, you know, whenever you have one dollar, you know, you have one dollar. The question is, what's the best use ultimately of this capital? And especially now for me, the answer is not index funds. The answer is not real estate. The answer is I'm going to try to buy another website. I'm going to try to put this money responsibly back into my business. I'm going to use this cash flow to grow the holdings within my my holding company because now I have a holding company uh, where, where I own six websites. And so that's by far the best ROI. And so that's where I spend you know all of my money and and how I use my my cash flow because I I have a lot more money in, in index funds than than I need to. And you know the real estate game is. Uh, a nice diversification play for me, but I'm not really passionate about it, you know, as, as a dominant strategy. And I see people who have like, you know, 300 doors and they're just stressed out all the time. And that's a whole business that just doesn't really, really excite me. Whereas, you know, buying and selling websites and domains and, you know, being involved in the internet economy, you know, really, really does. That's great. Um, we're moving back the way now. I know you mentioned a lot that while you said owning a business has been your greatest kind of ROI, let's talk about nine to fives because you didn't initially, you, you kept your nine to five for a while before this. So how would someone listening now, and I think majority of listeners will be in some form of nine to five or salary position, how do they go about hacking their nine to five? This is a term you like to use. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there that like their jobs. And if you like your job and you're making good money, and, you know, you can negotiate raises and, you know, you're happy where you're at, you know, congratulations, you know, you, you, you've, you know, accomplished something that most people don't. But the reality is when you look at the data and I, you know, I have this in the book, it's something really staggering in the Gallup workplace, you know, poll where it's like 78 or 80% of, you know, especially Americans are quote unquote, extremely disengaged at work. So a vast majority of Americans that are polled don't like their job. And in fact, they hate their job. And so if you like your job and you're making money and you want to stick around and, you know, save, you know, c congratulations, you know, if, if that is you, or even if that's not you, you know, obviously increasing your savings rate so that you can at least have more freedom in the bank, because if you love your job, you might not, you know, a lot can change. You know, we see this, you know, in the U S with, you know, Amazon, Google, IBM, you know, all these massive companies that, everyone viewed as being, you know, meta, everyone viewed as being, you know, forever jobs and careers, you know, they're having huge layoffs. And so there's really no job, even if you do a good job, that's secure. And this is why I'm such a big proponent of entrepreneurship and just side hustling in general is because I'd rather be in control of my life and my destiny than have my boss be in control of it. So I encourage anyone, even if you like your job, make sure that you're saving as much and investing as much as you can because, you know, you might be laid off even if you're doing a great job just because, you know, of some reason that's way beyond your control. Or number two, in five years, you might not like your job or, you know, you might have a kid and want to restructure your priorities. I, I encounter a lot of people who they really like their job and, you know, but they're not saving or investing as much money as, as they could. Uh, and then, you know, their life changes in some way and they're still stuck. And so at the end of the day, the number one goal is to have options, uh, even if you love your job and the more money you have, ultimately, the more options that you have. So in your nine to five, you know, there's, there's simple things that you can do. And I put a lot of them in the book, which is, you know, whenever you're doing a job, you know, you're getting a paid a salary to, to do that job. But if you go above and beyond and you can track when you go above and beyond, you ultimately have to figure out how to make the case to your boss and to your company you know, to pay you more money. And so there's ways that I recommend doing this in the book, like tracking every time that you go above and beyond your job description. If you're able to you know, grow the revenue of the company, that tends to be really highly valued. And you can likely tie your, your bonus or your compensation back to the tangible value that you grew the business. And you know, I have a number of stories that I've included in the book on how to do this. The reality, you know, and I've had you know, a number of employees and really smart people. The reality is most people are getting paid a lot less than they're worth and they're getting paid a lot less than they're worth because number one, they don't even know how much they're worth because they're not spending enough time 
trying to understand the market value of their position. They're not talking to recruiters. They're not looking at competitor company job posts. They're not under, you know, they don't understand the value of their experience and their knowledge, or they don't understand how much money they're actually making their company. And they also, I think most, you know, I can say I've had, you know, 75 employees in my life and, and, and less than five have ever, you know, asked for a raise with, you know, a reasonable case made. And, you know, it's like, it's like, it's ridiculous how few people actually ask for raises and how underpaid, you know, people are. Uh, and I talk about this in the book pretty controversially. I actually got a lot of flack for this because I talk about how most companies are just legal pyramid schemes, which is true <laughs> when you think about it. You know, it's it's all built, you know, capitalism is built on, you know, exploitation and leveraging and, you know, selling the, you know, and creating economies of scale, you know, out of people's time and, and labor. And so when you own a company, you see this very clearly. You're like, oh, that person's great. And I'm only paying them X amount of money and they're making me all this money. You know, your boss or your boss's boss or the person at the top knows how much money that you're making your company and there's a quantified value there. And for me, I was always looking for at least three to four X of what I was paying a person in actual, you know, top line revenue that they generated. And, you know, the calculations, you know, aren't aren't exact by any means, but I had a pretty good understanding how much money I was making off of people. So then when they came and they asked for a 5% raise, it was, it was a no brainer. Uh, and in some cases, one of, one of my top performers, I remember, uh, I actually gave him a hundred thousand dollar raise, uh, even though he came and asked for a smaller dollar raise because there was no chance that I wanted him to leave because he was making me a very high multiple on his salary already. And so I actually just leveled him up so he would stick around in the company and, uh, you know, paid him, you know, still less than he was worth to me, but it just blew his mind. And then he was extremely loyal and, and he stuck around, you know, ultimately until I sold that business. And so there's a lot going on, um, you know, at, at, at the people level when it comes to, you know, how incentive structures are set up. And I'm, I'm writing a lot about this actually in my new book, which will come out in, in February of 2025. So uh, it's, it's coming out in, in a little, you know, about a year, year and four months or so. But I'm writing about this now, just incentive structures and how people, how you develop them and, you know, a lot of crazy stuff around that. But yeah, to, to your point, read the book. There's a lot in there about how to hack your nine to five. Uh, and I get very, very detailed, less through the lens of me being an employee and more through the lens of, hey, you know, I owned a number of companies and I've had employees and here's exactly what, if you did this, you know, I would have no way but to not, you know, give you a raise. And then the final point is, you know, it, it costs the average company between 40 and 60% of your annual salary just to replace you. And so talent and good talent is really, really valuable. And a lot of employees, they increasingly are realizing they have more leverage now but they have a lot more leverage than they likely realize. And so, you know, you can go in and be like, you know, I want a $15,000 raise. And the, the actual, when you look at the numbers, um, the company should, should give you that raise just because it'll cost even more to replace you. Uh, and so, you know, there's some things that, that if you don't know, you don't know. And that's why I wanted to, to be so open, open about that. And I've gotten crazy emails, man, like people, oh, I got, you know, $75,000 raise, you know, I got a $100,000 raise, I've got 20,000 just for asking, you know, the actual results of that, you know, people kind of following that pretty simple framework have been, you know, astronomical, because the reality is a lot of people are paid a lot less than they're worth, because they don't realize how much they're worth. And then they don't know how to ask when they do ask. And so if you just change a few of those things, you figure out what you're worth, and then you make a case, you, you can likely get a much bigger raise, which, you know, every raise over time, you know, is, is increasing the, the, the rate of money that you can save and invest and compound. And, you know, none of this stuff is rocket science. And that's the really beautiful thing about it is, you know, you can you can do this stuff in your life today. You just have to know what to do. And, and, and a lot of people just don't. OK, well, on that point, we're going to finish by putting you on the spot here. And I think this is maybe trying to distill an entire book into one question, but I want to give you say to 25 year old Grant who has ambitions of retiring at, well, we may, maybe not say 30 because an 82% savings rate isn't, uh, isn't realistic for a lot of people. We'll say who wants to retire early 
who wants to achieve financial freedom and and reach those financial goals in a very short space of time? What's the one piece of advice you could give to that person? That's a great question. I think the number one thing is figure out what trade-offs you're willing to make because everything that has to do with money, there's a trade-off. And for me, I made too many trade-offs. And so I lost friendships. I ended up gaining over 50 pounds. You know, there's a lot of things that I did that I, if I'd thought about them and understood what those trade-offs would be for, you know, working 70, 80 hour weeks, not taking care of my health, not, you know, nurturing my friendships, not nurturing my relationships, then, then I, then I wouldn't have made them. Uh, I could have, I could have, you know, slowed down by about 20% and still, you know, retired in 10 years or less. And so I think a lot of people, or at least me, I have kind of an all or nothing mindset. You know, it's kind of black or white where it's like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be all in or I'm not going to do it. And I think there's a lot of people that especially look at my story and they're like, gosh, I can't do that. And the thing is, like looking back on it, you know, I, I recently reread part of my book and I don't even recognize that person anymore that I'm writing about because I've changed, you know, so much. And I'm like, this guy seems so intense. You know, like, I can't <laughs> even imagine, like, like, you know what I mean? I'm like, I was so intense. Like, I don't even, like, I don't even recognize you know, that, you know, anymore because I'm, I'm so different now. Um, and so that's the thing too, is you, you need to go at your own pace. You need, you know, the, the, it's, it's a math game, you know, it's, it's very simple math. And the thing is, just set some kind of seemingly unrealistic goal and then start, you know, start working towards it. And you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know the, the number one thing is just get going and just keep at it and just be mindful about the trade-offs that you're making. You know, I think especially, you know, in, in the West, you know, we, we, we try to rationalize everything. We try to you know, dominate. And this is the thing, a lot of, a lot of people that are attracted to financial independence, you know, they're kind of rational thinkers, they're engineers, they're systems thinkers. They're like, oh, if I just do A, B, and C, then I'll get, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, and that's true. But the reality is you have to be listening to your intuition as you're doing these things. Because what happened once, once my story got out, once the fire movement started growing, what happened is, People were like, whoa, that's so extreme. So some people got on board and they saved 80% of their income. And then they ended up burning out after a year and a half, right? They just, you know, they just, they were unhappy. They were, they weren't spending money in the right ways. And that's one of the reasons I tried to write my book and just be like, hey, if this thing gives you joy, then spend money on it. If it doesn't, then just don't. And I think there's a lot of people that just get so hardcore and they just burn out. You know, it's like someone just starting to work out. And then they're like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run an ultra marathon. And it's like, yo, 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 you got to like, you know, increase your mobility. You got to like start running some, you start lightly jogging. You've got to start. And I think a lot of people go way too fast, way too quickly when you've got to find the pace that works for you. You got to start trying it out. You got to make some mistakes and then you got to adapt because ultimately this is, this is a choose your own adventure path. And the thing is there's probably 800 different tips in the book, right? And you can't do all of them, nor should you do all of them. Just do a few of them, and the sum will be so much greater than the parts. I mean, just a few. I mean, just increasing your savings rate from 5% to 15%, you're going to have a lot more money than you thought you would have. You know, create a side hustle or create a side business and make a thousand or two thousand extra dollars a month, and then just invest that. The rate of compounding is going to increase exponentially. And then what happens is you just do a few of these things and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, driving a more affordable car and renting out my extra room and investing that money and having a side business where I make, you know, 500 to $1,000 a month and investing, you know, 20% instead of 10%. Wow. You put all of these four or five pieces together and you wake up in two years and you have you know $150,000 in the bank and you never thought that that would be possible and you've been inspired and you've accomplished way more than you thought you would accomplish. And then you can revisit how you feel because that's important. You got to check in with yourself. Am I still, do I still want a roommate? Do I still want to have this side business? Do I still want to work nights and weekends on my side business? 
Do I still, in some cases you're like, absolutely, I want to double down. In other cases, you're like, no, like this is good enough for now or no, I'm not willing to make that trade off. So life is, is long. Life is, you know, a series of changes and evolutions and energy shifts. And the more that you pay attention to that, it's so much easier to manage your relationship with money because relationships, uh, you know, relationship with money, just like any other relationship, you know, is going to change. And so you got to pay attention to that and be honest with yourself. And, and, and I guarantee anyone listening to this, if you spend more time with your money, if you spend more time thinking about it, if you spend more time thinking about how it makes you feel and the role that it plays in your life and the trade-offs that you're making, I can absolutely guarantee you that you'll start seeing money differently and its role in your life. And you'll end up wanting to acquire more freedom and you'll see exactly how to do that. And that's the most exciting thing you know, for me is when people think this isn't possible and then they start having a few wins and they're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, they feel empowered and inspired and, and realize that they can accomplish so much more than they thought that they could just with a few simple changes that are pretty easy to make and compound when added together so much more than just, you know, one decision by itself. That's great. I love that. Okay. Uh, before we finish up, I just want to give a quick word to our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Uh, Vodafone have recently launched their VHub digital advisory service, offering Irish business of all sizes free, one-to-one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone Business customer to avail of this service. So search Vodafone VHub to book a call with one of the VHub digital experts, and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode. Grant, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, for anyone who wants to find Grant, you can cross uh all major bookstores basically even in estonia now um we have millennial money website as well uh anything else you want to plug while you're here yeah uh check out the millennial money newsletter uh, millennial money slash grant dash corner or grants dash corner or you can just go to millennial money and go go to the bottom of the, of the site and click on uh grants corner i have a newsletter comes out you know every tuesday where i go really deep on money topics, things that I'm seeing in the world, uh, you know, have many hundreds of thousands of subscribers there. And it's a lot of fun. That's where I share, you know, a ton of different things that I have going on. And so um, it's all free and uh, yeah, sign up, sign up if you're interested. Yeah. And just get talking about money more. I think that's the the main lesson from today's show. Uh, Thank you very much for listening in lads and Grant again. Thank you for joining us. Remember if you, have any elevator patches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet. Simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and we will talk to you next week.